0: This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Karima Benamer. She's a neurologist and associate professor in the Department of Neurology at Emory School of Medicine. We'll be discussing neurologic complications from coronavirus disease. Welcome, Dr. Benamer. Thank you, Sarah.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Your study is about encephalopathy and encephalitis associated with coronavirus. What's the difference between the two?
1: Um, So encephalopathy is a general term um, that means that your um, consciousness or your level of consciousness has been altered. So somebody who's confused, we would say, is encephalopathic. And it's a spectrum. You can be encephalopathic from being confused to encephalopathic being almost covatose. Encephalitis is a little bit more specific. Itis is what defines inflammation related to something. So encephalitis means inflammation of the brain.
0: Have there been other studies done on neurologic effects associated with COVID-19?
1: So there have been reports um, and case theories, the first of which came out of China, Um, where they showed that up to a third of patients had neurologic complications. Um, And the neurologic complications range between what you heard about, you know, loss of taste and smell, uh, to encephalopathy, to stroke, to uh, your peripheral nerves being affected, um, to encephalitis. So there's a, a wide range, but we do know that uh, a third of patients do have neurologic effects related to COVID-19.
0: How would SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus get into the nervous system?
1: So the data that we know um, that we have is based on previous viruses, such as the original SARS in 2003. For for SARS-CoV-2 specifically, we actually don't know yet how it gets into the brain. Um the theory is that it can get into the brain either by direct invasion, so once it gets into your nasal cavity, it can actually travel up to um, to the olfactory nerve, so your, your nerve um, um, smell, and from there get into the brain. Um, uh, that's been shown in animal studies. Um, we, there is another theory also that it can get into the brain through the blood, um, and so the short answer is that for SARS-CoV-2 specifically, we do not know. Um, and what we do know, is humans anyway, what we do know is based on animal studies as well as the previous SARS uh, epidemic.
0: Tell us about your study. How many patients were there and what were you looking for? Were there significant aspects of it? What were they?
1: So um, I'm a neurohospitalist, uh, meaning that I'm a neurologist. Practicing in the hospital only, and so because of that, um, all patients that uh, we reported were in patients that were admitted to the hospital, and in this case specifically, they were admitted to the Emory University Hospital Midtown Campus. The paper talks about three patients; those were the three patients that we saw with um, encephalitis, and um, since then, we have identified many more uh, patients with that. Um, the way we went about this was that, uh, you know, I as a neurologist get consulted when other physicians um, get an inkling that something brain related is going on. And so if a patient is acting confused, or if the patient looks like they're having a seizure, or, you know, if their exam shows neurologic findings, that's how um, we neurologists get involved. In these particular patients, um, there were different manifestations. Um, And so some of them were having, you know, twitching episodes, Um, some of them were having signs on their exams their brainstem was not functioning, Um, and so that's how we got involved.
0: Clinical blood neuroimaging and cerebral spinal fluid testing were used to find out that these neurological problems were related to COVID-19. How did you go about this?
1: Right. So, that's a really good question. So, when we get consulted on patients who are confused or encephalopathic, um, you know, the first thing that we would do would be to perform a full neurological exam. So, that's your clinical part. Uh, And in the paper, we detail what our findings were um, in these patients. And what's interesting is that all three patients had um, what we would call brainstem findings, which is something that has been decri- described in the previous SARS epidemic, that the SARS virus has a predilection for the brainstem. So from there, uh, we uh, got brain imaging uh, using MRIs, um, as well as blood markers and cerebral fluid markers. And what we were trying to do was to not only confirm what we were finding on our clinical exam, but also study more in depth what was going on um, in these patients Um, from a blood marker standpoint um, and from a cerebrospinal fluid standpoint.
0: What were the results? Uh, How are they associated with COVID 19?
1: So, what was unique about our study was the identification of SARS CoV 2 serology and inflammatory markers in the spinal fluid, um, which is evidence of direct um, CNS involvement by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. These measurements were done in my colleague William Hughes' lab, who is the senior author on the paper. Um, His lab is at the forefront of identifying diagnostic and prognostic biomarkers for um, various inflammatory diseases including dementia and other inflammatory diseases. And, and, and so it's important to know that inflammation is a common denominator for multiple b- diseases, whether they be d- due to, you know, viral infection or other. In our case series, we found that the, these patients had elevated levels of what we call IgM, which is uh, an acute marker, an acute antibody that is formed uh, in response to a particular virus or, or you know, pathogen. All three of our patients had high levels of IgM um, against the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and the sicker the patients, the higher the levels were. We also measured cytokine levels in the spinal fluid and compared them to healthy subjects as well to, as to uh, subjects with HIV who had neurologic involvement. Um, so that was our viral control. And what we found was that there were similarities between um, COVID and HIV when they do invade the brain, But there were also some unique biological footprints, if you will, um, to COVID, namely that interleukin-8 and interleukin-10 were elevated in COVID patients but not in HIV.
0: So we do hear a lot about cytokine storms. What exactly are they? Cytokines are um,
1: a diverse group of small proteins um, that are made and secreted by cells in the body for the purpose of signaling and communication between different cells. Um, And so you have different kinds of cytokines, depending on what they do. You have the interleukins, the interferons, the chemokines, the tumor necrosis factors. Um, In our study specifically, we measured interferons, interleukins, and tumor necrosis factors, um, in addition to other things that are detailed in the paper. Um, So the cytokine storm um, is a term that first came by some transplant studies. And then from there, it was kind of taken on by um, infectious disease studies, and it was really popularized by the um, avian flu um, epidemic. Um, And what that means is that you kind of have an overwhelming response by the immune system um, to the pathogen that it's exposed to. So instead of having a measured response, you will have this, quote-unquote, storm of cytokines. And, you know, what we tell patients is that the immune system kind of goes into overdrive, which in itself can cause damage to various structures in the body and organs.
0: In what ways is this important to public health and understanding COVID-19?
1: I think it's really important because a lot of people think COVID-19 means, you know, lung injuries. Um, you know, when you hear COVID-19, you think about shortness of breath and fever and cough. And the truth is that what we have seen is that it really affects multiple um, organs in, in the body. Um, you know, I, as a neurologist, of course, focus on the neurologic um, complications of COVID-19, but, uh, which, are, which are very important, um, right, because we have even seen people who have recovered from COVID-19 but are still having chronic symptoms of having cognitive decline, for example. They they, they say they can't think straight, um, or people who are continuing to have headaches. Um, So there's still a lot of work to be done just to understand the chronic manifestations, um, but it's important for people to know that it affects not just your lungs. It affects your brain, your heart, your kidneys, uh, your skin, actually. Um, So it's really a widespread uh, or or a disease with wide manifestations.
0: Well, tell us about your job at Emory and how you're involved with this virus and also um, what it's like to continue practicing medicine in the middle of all of this.
1: As I said before, I'm an a hospitalist, so um, I see patients who are admitted to the hospital. Um, so if you will, I see a skewed population, but only patients who are sick are admitted to the hospital. And so I see patients who are Um, in the intensive care units, as well as patients who are just in the regular floors all around the hospital with neurologic manifestations. Um, You know, practicing in the time or the era of COVID-19 has been really um, challenging, but also really eye-opening. Challenging in, in the way that, you know, we are dealing with a virus that can cause serious complications, including death. And so um, you know, we as healthcare workers, um, you know, physicians, nurses, therapists, all kinds of healthcare workers are exposed to this virus on a daily basis. Um, and it kind of added a layer of, um, of anxiety where we have to, you know, put on the appropriate PPE before, or PPE meaning, you know, the, the protective um, equipment, so masks and, and, and shields and all that, before seeing a patient with COVID-19. Um, And, you know, people worry about not only getting this uh, disease, but also carrying the virus to their loved ones and their families. It's really been eye-opening because we are at the forefront of discovering a new disease and studying it, and um, we kind of are learning as we go. Um, And this is not something that, you know, physicians do on a regular basis as a practice, right? So we are trained. Um, on various diseases, and when we go in, we know what we're doing. And when you're faced with a new epidemic or pandemic, you are discovering as you go. And so it's eye-opening, it's um, um, exciting, but also anxiety-inducing all in one. I can imagine.
0: What do you think the immediate future holds for us concerning this virus?
1: Um, a lot more to learn. Um, you know, I really worry um, that... We started having the numbers' seeing numbers go down and now we're seeing numbers increase in various states um, and of course I worry about you know these uh, people having uh, even though people think that oh you know eighty percent of people only get a mild course, I of course only see the ones who are admitted to the hospital um, and and this virus can make people really really sick so I, I worry that the numbers are going back up and I really hope that um, folks continue to social distance and wear their masks uh, and do the appropriate things, you know, washing hands, sanitizing, to try to dampen the pandemic.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Benamore.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the September 2020 article, Encephalopathy and Encephalitis Associated with Cerebrospinal Fluid, cytokine, alterations, and coronavirus disease, Atlanta, Georgia, USA, 2020, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.